0: sight to have an overflow crowd. Uh, That in itself causes problems, but it's so much so much nicer to have an overflow crowd than not to the reverse. Welcome to the inaugural lecture in the Dr. Harold Abel Lecture Series in the study of dictatorship, democracy, and genocide. The purpose of this endowed lecture series is to bring to campus distinguished scholars to discuss the past, present, and future of worldwide genocides. This series will focus on the impact of historical events, including World War II, the Holocaust, and genocides in Rwanda, Cambodia, and Darfur. Tonight's talk will focus on the Holocaust. I am Gary Shapiro, interim provost and dean of the College of Humanities and Social Behavioral Sciences. I am very gratified that uh, the Harold Abel Endowed Lecture Series resides within the College of Humanities and Social Behavioral Science. The Abel Endowed Lecture Series honors the life of Dr. Harold Abel, who had a 44-year distinguished career in higher education, both as a faculty member in psychology and as an administrator. Among his administrative positions, Dr. Abel served as president of Central Michigan University for ten years from 1975 to 1985. Uh, He is still remembered fondly by a number of very long time serving faculty and staff
1: at the university.
0: Dr. Abel was an individual who encouraged dialogue and conversation. While he was president, the university had a dining area in the university center. it is the rotunda and the terrace rooms. Uh, every lunchtime, faculty
1: and staff would join together to eat lunch. Harold would often be found there,
0: engrossed in conversation with faculty from across campus. Many of the difficult issues facing the university were discussed at lunch, and the conversations had a major impact on what was resolved. Dr. Abel also enjoyed meeting and speaking with speakers from off campus who had come to CMU. I have the privilege to meet and talk with him many times. I remember him saying to me that meeting with guest speakers and performers was one of the nicest parts of being president. He was also a person greatly concerned with social justice and had a great deal of intellectual curiosity. He cared deeply about Central Michigan University. He wanted it to become a better university and to become a better known university. This lecture series in his name has been a fitting tribute to him. The Harold Abel endow- endowment was established through the generous gift of Dr. Abel's wife Iris and his family. We are honored to have tonight, to, we're honored tonight to welcome former CMU First Lady Iris Abel back to campus. Iris, why don't you stand up and let people recognize you? There are a number of friends and former colleagues, of Dr. Abel and Iris, who are able to join us tonight and it's really a privilege to see them, some of those I have not seen for many years. Other members of, of Dr. Abel's family in attendance tonight include his son Larry and Larry's wife, Saina, Larry and Saina, and then uh, the other son, Matthew Abel, and he has two grandchildren, two of his children, two of Iris's grandchildren, uh, Julian and Gabriel. So please join with me and welcome them to our campus again. I would like also to thank the members of the Abel Advisory Committee who are here tonight. If you're here, please stand and be recognized by the group. honored tonight also to have our Interim President Kathy Wilber join us with tonight's talk. Kathy, thank you for attending tonight's event. And Kathy, where are you? Right over here. <laughs> I'd now like to introduce Dr. Eric Johnson, who is Chair of the Advisory Committee of the Abel Endowment. Uh, Dr. Johnson is a long-serving faculty member of Central Michigan University's History Department coming to CMU in 1976 after receiving a Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania. He is recognized as a top-flight historian, is invited to be a visiting professor and a visiting scholar at many world-renowned universities and institutes. He himself is an authority on World War II and the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. He is the author of a number of major works, including What We Knew, Terror, Mass Murder, and Everyday Life in Nazi Germany published in 2005, and that's in Nazi Terror, Terror, the Gestapo, Jews, and Ordinary Germans, published in 2000. Dr. Johnson will now introduce our speaker for tonight. And thank you again for coming. Well, thanks to the encomium and uh, uh,
2: greetings to all. Thanks to the Abel family and uh, President Gilbert, Provost. Uh, Shapiro and friends, college students. Uh, It's amazing and great to see uh, all of you here. And as i said to Professor Weinberg, your fame proceeds to So uh, I'm enormously uh, honored to be able to introduce uh, one of the truly
1: great scholars of our time, who himself uh, has uh, been born in Germany and written some of the most important work
2: that exists on Second World War, this book right here, almost 1,200 days. It says is a perfect book for you all to buy. And if you can stop in your back seat, uh, you can, sorry, into your trunk, it's, uh, it's it's friendly to the environment. And uh, it will actually make sure you have no problems when you go out uh, hunting or doing anything else with some of the other, whatever it tell you more uh, about that. But it really is, for, for this and for other work seat, recently won uh, probably the most famous prize, or court prize, for the greatest military show in the world, Christopher Prize in Chicago least, uh, I believe the a bomber house uh, that was there. Tonight is a, an enormous night. I mean, you are all, all here, and uh, I think that most of you are aware of the importance of this night for the world, for Germany, and particularly for Jewry. It's both a night. And of great to remember, of great uh, for happiness. And it's a night to be very sad about, actually, it's a kind of nightmare. On November 9th, 20 years ago, was the night when the Berlin Wall was breached. And uh, I had the pleasure of actually going out and banging on that wall uh, the next day. I was in Cologne, Germany, and drove with many others. I think like all of Germany went to Berlin right then, and I was there. A day later, that's a very happy moment that Germany was reunited. 71 years ago, on November 9, 1938, it was much more of a nightmare. This day, this night, which has to be known as the Night of Broken Glass, or Reichsfestahlnacht in German, was a night in which the first really horrible, fun incredible actions were to, took place against Jews. So were many other nights and days before that. But then all of the synagogues and places of worship, almost without exception, were burned to the ground within that day and another day or so after it. And roughly 30,000 Jewish men were carted off into concentration camps boys even from the ages of some 16 to 70. Professor Weinberg himself was there. He was born in Hanover and raised in Hanover. I won't say the exact date, but he was just young enough not to be taken off, I guess. And He could tell you that if he wishes. And he was there until Hitler's beginning in 1933 there and the late 20s coming as a little boy. But then he was able to get out with his brother, and I don't know all the stories, and more of his family or his parents, I think, his father at least. Or anyway, he went to England, spent two years there, and then came to the United States. Uh, there are so many achievements that Professor Weinberg has. He's held so many roles. he has been so
1: important to the study of the Holocaust, to the study of the Second World War, to the study of the Third Reich, the study of
2: history, the study of humanity—that uh, I could only begin to just mention it. Uh, I was thinking I was going to read off just even the blurb off the back of this wonderful book that you should all buy and again, you know, use and read, and you can stop and read it, you know, as you're driving to the U.P. to uh, shoot the deer or whatever you're doing, and uh, and and with profit you'll read it and read it and read it again. And so, uh, Professor Weinberg was Michigan uh, professor at Michigan for 15 years in Ann Arbor. Uh, before he uh, held several appointments, eventually went to North Carolina, where he was at the University
3: of North Carolina as a Merit Chair Professor at that university. Um, I will now give you him who's going to talk about a new book at Hitler and the Origins of the Holocaust. Whatever he has to say is a great moment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Johnson. (coughs) Uh, Members of the ABLE family, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to be here with you tonight, uh, especially to start a series uh, that honors a man who did so much and gave so much uh, for this university. It has long seemed to me that much of the discussion of the beginning of the Holocaust does not pay sufficient attention to the specific nature of the documents that survive and have been utilized by scholars in analyzing events. <coughs> Excuse me. We have known for years that Hitler told those who wanted to initiate a program for the killing of the handicapped that this would have to await the beginning of war. As Henry Freelander has shown us, this was not some vague notion, but a serious intent on Hitler's part, and it would be implemented in 1939 with Hitler's written October authorization backdated to September 1st. 1939. No one, as far as we know, came to Hitler in the 1930s with a similar call for a program of killing Jews, so that he
1: had no occasion to make a similar response. What we
3: do know is that in the winter of 1938-39, he decided there would be war in 1939, and that no one was going to cheat him of war as he believed Neville Chamberlain had done in 1938. It is no coincidence that the gathering of German media representatives to be told to prepare the German public for war was held by Hitler at the same time as the November 1938 program at which Professor that Johnson deferred. While Hitler had called for the extermination of all Jews to a cheering audience in Munich in early 1920, the chronologically first documented reference by Hitler as chancellor to killing Jews came soon after his decision for war. On January twenty first, 1939, Hitler told Czechoslovak foreign minister Tchaikovsky, quote, the Jews in this country will be destroyed. The terminology here is the one that Hitler invariably uses thereafter to describe killing, not expulsion or anything else. The notorious prediction of January, 1930, 19, January 30th, 1939, in a public speech to the German parliament, expands the concept of destroying all Jews
1: from Germany to Europe, subject I'll
3: refer to. The next specific discussion of killing Jews by Hitler is in one of his conversations. With Romanian dictator Ion Antonescu in Munich on June
1: 12, 1941. Hitler explains
3: to the Romanian leader that the Jews in the Soviet Union, that Germany and Romania were about to invade, are to be killed. When
1: it turns out that, unlike one other conversation, this particular talk of the two men is not recorded by a German memorandum, the accuracy of the Romanian record of this part of one of the talks is confirmed by the German Foreign Ministry's for the benefit of the high command of the armed forces.
3: On the evening of July twenty first, 1941, Hitler had a long conversation with the Croatian minister of war, Dr. Patenek. One page of the record was accidentally omitted when the original was microfilmed before the Germans themselves destroyed it. Before the break in the microfilm of the record, Hitler had begun what appears to have been a lengthy discussion of the Jewish question. After the break in the record, he is quoted as warning that even one family of Jews allowed to remain in any country would be dangerous. He would insist on emptying the whole European continent of Jews. Since Platonic had been born in the Hungarian portion of Austria-Hungary and had served in the austro hungarian army in World War I, Hitler then commented that Hungary would be the last country to surrender its Jews, one of the few predictions Hitler made in July 1941 that turned out to be correct. In his conversation with Haj Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, on November 28, 1941, Hitler explained his views in both more detail and with a wider range. He asserted Germany was insisting on a solution of the Jewish problem in every European country and would then turn to Jews living among, quote, non-European peoples, that is, the rest of the world. As with Paternik, Hitler had assumed an interest in Hungary rather than Norway or Portugal, so with the Mufti, he assumed an interest in the Middle East rather than Peru or Tasmania. He therefore explained that when the German army arrived in that region, it, its only goal would be, and I quote, the destruction of the Jews living in Arab space, under the protection of British power. One should note here, once again, the use of the term Fenestrum. Obviously, Hitler did not tell the Mufti that the area was to be a part of Italy's colonial empire, but he did clarify the global concept that would subsequently be implemented by the extension of the Holocaust to the Dadochenes Islands that the Germans considered a
1: part of Asia, as well as the attachment of a murder commando to Rommel's headquarters in Africa.
3: You may have noticed that every one of these reports covers a conversation of Hitler with a foreign representative. Are we therefore to assume that Hitler reviewed his plans for the killing of Jews only, With foreign leaders? Is it not more likely that the survival of these records is related precisely to the need for records of international discussions, while similar records were not always prepared for discussions with German leaders? We know. That Admiral Raider, the Commander-in-Chief of the Jordan Navy from 1928 to 1943, and Albert Speer, as Minister of Armaments and Military Production, kept records of the questions they took up with Hitler, precisely because that was the only way they could afterwards be sure to have a record of Hitler's decisions. They assumed, Until the initiation of stenographic records of the military conferences in the fall of 1942, there was no systematic keeping of records of Hitler's meetings with German military and political leaders. But then, how were Hitler's plans to be implemented if not by the German political and military leaders with whom he met? In his study of Heinrich Himmler's role in the Holocaust, Professor Richard Brightman reviewed the evidence on new plans for dealing with Jews in the months of February to April 1941. The references to Hitler in the evidence are invariably at second hand. May I suggest that this is where another look at the appointment calendar of Heinrich Himmler may be helpful. We know from it that Himmler met with Hitler at least six times in April 1941. Both before and after these meetings, Himmler regularly met with Reinhard Heydrich, the head of the Reich Security Main Office, and Kurt Bernhard, the chief of the uniformed police. Since those were the days of final preparation for the invasion of the Soviet Union, is it not reasonable to assume that aspects of policy planning for that campaign were discussed by Hitler and Hitler? In this connection, there is some new information that deserves mention. There has been considerable discussion about the question of whether the leaders of the Einsatzgruppen, the killing squads assigned to follow the German armies as, it, as they advanced into the Soviet Union, were gathered for a meeting and given oral instruction to kill Jews in the newly occupied Soviet Union before the invasion started on June 22, 1941. It has been argued by some that this whole idea was fabricated after the war to provide a lower punishment for the leaders of these murder commandos on the basis of their following orders. It now turns out that when the British turned over Otto Ollendorf, the former commander of murder Squad D, to the United States in December 1945, The British also provided the Americans with summaries of the interrogations of him that they had conducted earlier. These documents were security classified at the time, and as quote, foreign government information quote, were not reviewed for possible declassification until after the passage of the 1998 Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Law lifted the automatic exclusion from review. With the agreement of the British, the material has now been declassified and is covered in the newly published book on the Orlendorf trial by Professor Hilary Earl. It is clear from this material that Orlendorf was talking about the pre-invasion meeting in the summer of 1945, long before any trials, and when he had no claim of the possibility that he might be tried himself. There evidently was such a meeting, and the instructions were given morally, presumably intentionally so. That these would be interpreted somewhat differently in the early rapid rushing forward of the Einsatzgruppen in the first weeks of the campaign is hardly surprising. The point about their reports that have become famous or notorious that needs emphasis is that the reports are from essentially militarized police units operating hundreds of miles apart and regularly reporting on the killing of Jews. Clearly, that's what they thought they were supposed to do and report on military units do not report on their operations unless they have reason to believe that that's what is expected of them. It is this point that seems to me to be essential for understanding of the reports of the order police battalions that were intercepted and decoded by the British. Unlike the Einsatzgruppen reports, that became available while the trials at Nuremberg were going forward. These decrypts were security classified at the time and not declassified until 1996. As has long been known, the original German documents were deliberately destroyed by the German and the surviving officers and men of those units preferred to continue their careers and then draw their pensions in post-war Germany to standing trial for war crimes. Now that these reports are available for the summer of 1941, at least in part, there is an aspect similar to the reports of the Einsatzgruppen. From places hundreds of miles apart, they were reporting on the killing of Jews. Clearly, that was what they thought they were supposed to be doing and reporting on. And when they were told to report by more secure means, they naturally took that as a sign that they were acting as they were supposed to, and that they would continue to report on the killings, but in a more secure manner. The conclusion I would draw from this is that before the invasion of the Soviet Union, there was an analogous meeting of the uniformed police leaders with Kodalyuk, or his representative, giving them oral instructions similar to those given to the Anzacs Group. Although not phrased the same way, this is also the conclusion of Edwin Westerman's careful study of the uniformed police units. Since the British waited. Until 1983, to provide the United States with the intercepts just mentioned, there is no reason to believe that they provided them to the government of Czechoslovakia
1: when Dalud was tried and executed there in 1946, so that he could not be asked about them, even if the prosecutors had been interested
3: in the general subject. It has long been been known that all German units were encouraged to incite local programs and to assist any that started without German help. Now that the size of the police battalions is known, there cannot be any argument anymore that there were not enough German men available to implement the program of killing all Jews in the Soviet Union even without massive pogroms. Westermann suggests that 12,000 men made up the police units. There were well over 2,000 in the Einsatzgruppe. The recent excellent book by Johannes hurt on the German commanders on the Eastern Front adds some SS and police units for a grand total of 30,000 men tasked with the killing of Jews as one of their major responsibilities. The units under the control of Hitler's new immediate command add over 10,000 more men to those engaged in mass murder in the summer of 1941. In this context, any notion that such numbers could not have been expected before June 22, 1941, to implement the program of the systematic killing of millions must be abandoned. That in the initial phases of the campaign, the very rapid German advance precisely through areas of especially heavy Jewish settlement, there was confusion and local variation in killing procedures and victim selection is hardly surprising. Though this aspect of the practical realities of the time has generally been ignored in the literature on the subject. The initial confusion and variations, however, do not, in my opinion, reflect back on pre-invasion planning and orders that those who were trying to implement them did their
1: best or worst to
3: carry out. If we now look back at the evidence discussed here, we can see a program of systematic killing for the Jews of the Soviet Union intended and ordered before the invasion, preferably with army support and without army objections. It was as the initial German military victories of June and July convinced Hitler that the campaign would end quickly as he had anticipated, and that the German and that the German military were fully cooperating in the slaughter of Jews, that by the last week of July he was confident that the time had come to extend the killing program to all of Europe. As that
1: looked feasible to him, he could indulge in the hopes of a worldwide killing program, as he explained
3: in November. Like other Nazi leaders, Hitler knew The Jews had been expelled from various countries and cities in the past, but had, after more or fewer centuries, been allowed to return. No Jews could ever return in future centuries to any German state, however defined, once all on earth had been killed. The whole subject of the decision to launch systematic killing and the initial stages of mass murder in the summer of 1941 has hitherto been discussed and reviewed by scholars of the Holocaust a great deal. The existing literature, however, has, in my opinion, perhaps not done so sufficiently from the perspectives of those who made decisions on the one hand, and on the other hand, those who believed themselves to be implementing their countries and their leaders' policies. The account that I have just provided is centered on Hitler since there cannot be any doubt that the major decisions in Nazi Germany were made by him. But those decisions were, of course, not self-executing. Just as the decision to murder the handicap had to be implemented by doctors, nurses, killing center administrators and attendants, and other personnel, so the systematic killing of Jews could occur only if those who were prepared to kill, those who were prepared to help the process, and those others who knew about it who were either in favor or at least agreeable to have such things happen. The available evidence makes it clear that the higher levels of the police were enthusiastic about the killing program, and that those actually personally engaged in murder were, for the most part, agreeable to participating in mass killing. Any individuals who declined to take part were assigned other duties whenever killing was on the agenda. There were always enough who would kill there were always plenty of other things that needed to be done, and the leadership did not want a high-priority program carried out by any who were reluctant. It was among the leadership of the military that it was at first not certain of full support for the systematic killing of civilians. We forget today, looking back, that it could not be certain in advance that the German military leader shouldn't go along with the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of children, women, and elderly men, it being assumed that the young and middle-aged men would, for the most part, be in the Red Army. There had been a few objections from among the military to the slaughter of priests, Jews, and other civilians <coughs> in the early stages of the invasion and occupation of Poland in 1939, and it had taken some time and special measures to deal with this. What would be the reaction to a vastly greater level of wholesale killing? It became obvious to Hitler in the first weeks of the campaign in the East that with minute exceptions, the military would go along with the murder program with greater or lesser enthusiasm, but never any serious objection. The clear signs of support from the German army were, if anything, underlined by the military's July 1941 order that captured Red Army soldiers who were Jewish were to be shot. Although this, this is a surmise that cannot be documented, Hitler's July decision to have the killing extended beyond the newly occupied portions of the Soviet Union to other areas under German control, as he explained to Quaternick on July 21st, 22nd, was likely influenced by his seeing the actual experience of the first weeks of mass killing without any objections from within the military or political hierarchy. Furthermore, as news first of mass killing in the East and then deportation to killing centers spread inside Germany, there were indeed small numbers of individuals who objected and in some instances helped victims to escape. But there was never any substantial opposition and never a complaint from the Christian churches. On one occasion, in February 1943, the demonstrating non-Jewish spouses of Jews who were held by the police in Berlin for deportation to the East did lead to the decision that these prospective victims be released. The days of the final disaster for the Germans at Stalingrad did not look to the country's leaders as a good time to have a riot in the streets of the capital. But if there is anything to the notion that the exception proves the rule, this exception illuminates the extent to which the regime could count on the acquiescence of the overwhelming bulk of its citizens as it had chosen to define them. And for a leadership that truly believed that the First World War had been lost because of the collapse of the home front rather than defeat on the field of battle, the status of home front morale was always of the highest importance. On such subjects related to home front morale, as food rations and the mobilization of women, the regime thought it advisable to hold back as long as conceivably possible. But in this one field, the killing of Jews, there turned out to be no
1: need to worry. The impetus that Hitler provided from the top would be implemented without substantial objection until physically
3: halted by the military operations and eventual victory of the Allies. Thank you. Now it's your turn. I would say would you stand for questions? Would yes. okay, you sit for questions? Sit for well, questions. I'll stand, stand,
1: questions. stand for questions. Some people someplace that maybe some cards that people have filled out <coughs> ask Sarah Buckley about that if that's the case. As some people um, might not feel totally comfortable to ask questions from the audience, but in the profession, we often take them as they come, so uh, I'm sure that he's uh, capable so, um, does anybody want to start asking a question? Right there. So, yes, sir. I think of uh,
3: the reality in America today and what communication is done.
0: What should they do to far our public information to
1: hold this back, keep it covered up, keep it silent, then that uh, Hitler's plan is to
3: than well, while the details and statistics were kept secret the general notion that this mass killing was going forward very quickly was general knowledge in the country there are a couple of things about this that are easily forgotten. One of them is that there was one way in which the German military differed from that of all other major World War II participants. Soldiers in the Red Army, the
1: Chinese Army, the Japanese Army did not get leave, period. When American or British
3: soldiers got leave, they didn't go home. The British did not send home soldiers from North Africa, from Burma. We didn't send home American soldiers fighting on Guadalcanal or in Italy or whatnot. If they got time leave, they went to some kind of a recreation center behind the front or were released into one of the big cities. The German army of World War II was unique in that the soldier who got leave got on a train and went home and then got on another train and went back to whatever unit he was supposed to be at. There is therefore vastly more interchange, if you will, of discussion and so on between the front and home than in any of the other major religions. A second area which brought information home was that for reasons which some people are just beginning to uh, analyzed, it's always puzzled me I must admit, German soldiers made it a habit to take pictures of mass killings and executions and sending them home. And every few months the German army regulations would again instruct them to kindly not do this. And the reason obviously was they kept hauling them out of the cent- as they were censoring letters. And much of our photographic evidence of the Holocaust, as some of you may know, comes from pictures taken by German soldiers at the front. They obviously thought this would enthuse their wives, parents, and siblings. Now, there is another way in which uh, information came out. And that is by listening to foreign broadcasts by watching their neighbors uh, disappear. And in the latter part of the war, by the regime quite deliberately in public commenting on what had happened, in order to enthuse the German public into fighting harder for fear that their enemies would do to them what they had been doing as it was called at the time, strength through fear rather than strength through joy. So that while details were obviously known only by those directly involved, the rest of the population had a pretty good idea. And many of you may have either read or heard of an interesting piece of evidence on this subject. And that's the diary of Anne Frank. How many of you have read that? Great. OK, practically all. There's a, there's a set of passages in it that, if you would still have a copy, you might want to look at again. It's kind of interesting. In June of 1942, she and her family go into hiding in an attic in German-occupied Holland. In November of 42, she writes in her diary that those Jews from Holland who have been taken first to the collecting center at Westerbork and then sent east. are all killed there, most likely by gas. This terrified teenager, I think she's 13 at the time, hiding in an attic in German-occupied Holland, knows what's going on. I find it hard to believe that she was the only
2: person in Europe who <laughs> I mentioned that in a little bit. <laughs> a book I published myself that I wrote called what we knew. I was sitting in Germany in 1994 and had been there for several years. And I read about Anne Frank story in a Cologne newspaper while I was living. They were talking about her listening to BBC, and so about. Holocaust, Professor Weinberg told her. And so I went to the BBC archives in outside of London um, to actually read what was said in the German language by the German East d- service of the BBC that she was listening to, and as the people from Cologne were listening to, only about 200 miles away, and all across Germany. And so exactly what you say really stirred me up a whole lot about the right of modest book, or big book. Other questions or issues that we'd like to I'm, I'm sorry, where is somebody? I'm at the back. My question relates to primary source evidence and in particular as it relates to audio evidence of the meetings. Who were the persons who had this audio evidence and did not release it until 1996, I think you said, and what was the benefit of
3: holding this evidence? The evidence uh, of British interception and decoding of the German police units that uh, was released to the Americans in 83 and declassified in 96 why was this not released earlier? Obviously, you have to ask uh, people in the British government. Uh, interestingly enough, they shared this with the Russians in the winter of 1941-42, and waited another 40 years to provide it to the Americans. They didn't want people knowing about their decoding operations in this regard. Uh, and. Uh, Eventually, in 1996, when my successor as head of the relevant committee of the American Historical Association um, got uh, the inheritor of such things, which in this country would be uh, the uh, National Security Agency, to ask the Brits for declassification, in 1996, they went ahead and declassified In the case of the Ullendorf summaries, there you had this, what I've long considered, one of the major problems in the American security classification system. And that is that there was and remains a blanket exemption from review for declassification of what's called foreign government information. Instead of setting a deadline, let's say, longer than our own 25-year, saying that after 35 years, we will ask the government that provided that information if it can be declassified. There is no such provision in any of our executive orders pertaining to security classification so that in the case of the Ollendorf material that I alluded to, Nobody ever asked the Brits, can we declassify this? It was only on the Nazi war crimes disclosure law that this blanket exemption, you see what I mean, was lifted, and what in this case was the successor organization to the OSS, namely the CIA, asked the Brits, can we release this? and my own guess is they said, well, you hanged them in 51, so it's okay. Uh, lots of stuff under the uh, Nazi war crimes disclosure law of 1998 came out, I- including not only what I mentioned, that is the North interrogations, but a great deal else. And uh, I was, and the people in the CIA were very surprised at how cooperative the British had suddenly become on declassification. They were at first as puzzled as I. I was at that time the chair of the historical advisory panel that was advising the agency that was implementing the law. And several of them uh, gave me in one word or another the same answer to this very unusual British willingness to declassify. Uh, And that was that not only everybody in the American government, but also in the British government knew that President Clinton was personally interested, and that if there were a holdup, he would call Tony Blair, and they would get a rocket from 10 Downing Street. And they did not want the rocket from 10 Downing Street. And since none of this stuff had anything to do with anybody's security, at the end of the 1990s, vast quantities of records that the British had provided to the Americans in copies during and right after World War II got to be declassified. So sometimes uh, it just needs the general understanding that somebody way up is interested.
0: There's a question over there. Professor Weinberg, um, I lived in Germany in 1995, and I was living in the town Augsburg, which is just outside of Munich. And two things really struck in my mind after living in Germany for a year. Number one, I noticed that when I went to the Munich train station on my way to teach, that I always saw every week some magazine article, some book about Adolf Hitler. And there seemed to be just this continued interest in Adolf Hitler. And I wanted to ask you why he seems to be such a fascinating character and continues to be such a fascinating individual in Germany,
3: but also number two, how was he able to scapegoat the Jews so much as he was? Because the Jews, I understand, only approximately about 500,000
0: lived in Germany at this time, and yet he was successful in selling to the German people that the Jews were at the root of all their problems, and
3: they all pretty much went along with this. So why is Hitler continue to be popular, and why was he able to basically uh, destroy the Jews with very little resistance? The answer to your first question is that the Germany of today and of the last uh, 60 years is, in its form, something the result of Hitler's control of Germany for a dozen years. That is to say, the loss of very substantial territories in the East that had long been settled by Germans. A experience of bombing and devastation which, unlike World War I, in World War II came into Germany. World War I, 99% of the physical damage was outside Germany. The Second World War taught the Germans. That a world war might well come home, or as I once traced it when asked about this, it is that if you don't want your house to burn, don't set the world on fire. But uh, these are people who experienced this, and so and and the long time division of Germany, which happily ended twenty years ago. But which for adult Germans today constituted a very large part of their lives. Whether they lived in West Germany or East Germany, that division is again the product of the Hitler regime that, it, if you will, brought
1: to the country. So that there would be an interest
3: in How did these things which so changed the country come about? And I would add the other side of this, the reconstruction of Germany, the development of a functioning federal system for the first time in the country, the development of a parliamentary democracy that the people accept. Uh, These are all products of what the occupation authorities did both to and for the Germans at the end uh, of the Hitler regime, so that uh, the interest in the country uh, is, it seems to me at least, perhaps not that surprising. Uh, The other issue is that while there had been a degree of Uh, anti-Semitism among many Germans uh, before 1933. The propaganda simply accentuated this and made it into a scapegoat for whatever was wrong. It didn't matter what it was. It's always easy to blame on somebody. uh, And then you are absolved automatically. Uh, of responsibility, and I would argue that ironically because the the Jewish population of Germany was substantially less than 1% (coughs) of the population, and since the beginning of the 19th century as a percentage had in fact been decreasing from about 1.1% in 1800 to 0.7 or 0.8% in 1933 uh, made it an inviting target. Uh, What on earth were they going to do about it? Obviously, essentially nothing. You have a, uh, to a large extent, helpless, tiny minority who you can blame for anything you want to blame them for. And if you repeat the same thing often enough, eventually, you might find people willing to believe it. And finally, there is one other aspect here that I think I'm going to offend some people in the audience here, but because I think it's important, I'm going to have to say it anyway. And that is that as regards certain categories of people, not all, but the vast majority of Germans were prepared to think in racial categories. And they had become accustomed to thinking in racial categories, especially these a the Slavic peoples and particularly the Poles. And if people are prepared to think in such categories, okay, then it becomes much easier to utilize this thinking of categories and apply it to this, that, or whatever other group uh, you feel strongly about. And you can, in a sense, utilize the readiness of the audience that you are addressing. Uh, Because there is a category of people, some higher, some lower, and some at the very bottom of the scale, that they are prepared to think in terms of. And uh, I would argue uh, that this, although in Germany focused particularly on Poles, uh, could be relatively easily transferred to other groups who are defined by the regime in racial categories, not religious categories. My best guess. Uh, Now, uh, uh, there's a question here. And whoever. Oh, there are many you, questions here from uh, the audience as We'll
2: come we'll, we'll to that in a minute, but can, you've got I'll well, give you a, a simple one. There's several excellent questions here. I'm wondering how they're. you can answer The first one, I'll throw you a softball. As I, as Professor Weinberg, um, not long ago, I think it's about seven years ago, published Hitler's second book, companion volume two, is renowned and revived. Uh, mein Kampf, which he wrote after he first tried to take over Nazi Germany, or Germany, sorry, in 1923, and he wrote it while he was in prison the next year. Um, anyway, while working on German documents after the war, captured the documents, Professor Weinberg, as a young uh, scholar, came across what was known as Hitler's second book. It had to wait a long time before he published it. Question here is, when you found the second book, did you know right away that it was written by Hitler? Oh,
3: well, in the late forties, early fifties, there were in the then existing literature references to another book that Hitler had written but not published. A French intelligence officer who interviewed. One of Hitler's secretaries after the war uh, mentioned her commenting on this. In the uh, English-language edition uh, that uh, Trevor Robo, Decker, uh, and uh, published, Hitler himself referred briefly to another book. And according to what little we knew about this other book from references was it dealt with foreign policy. Since I was at the time working on German foreign policy in the 1930s, and subsequently published books of which a new edition in paperback is about to come out, that was foreign policy. The most of all, needless to say, I was very interested in what he might have written on foreign policy. Uh, after setting up the program for microforming the captured German records before they were returned to Germany in 19. 19- uh, 56, 57. I turned the project over to a successor but went back to Washington in the summers to help out on this and it was in the summer of 1958 going through a stack of stuff that was scheduled to go back to Germany and there was this fat folder marked the partial draft of my conf and I opened it and started reading. And it was perfectly obvious from the opening text that this was not part of it. Drafted by Kampf, this was the text of this second book. And uh, it turned out that at the back of this folder was the American confiscation notice. An American captain had picked this up in Munich at the Nazi Party Publishing House in May of 1945. We'd given the Brits a microphone of it. But then it, so to speak, vanished from sight until I turned it up,
1: published it uh, in 1961 in Germany, and then spent 40 years, every few years, asking another publisher to
3: put it out in English, uh, and getting one turned down after another. Uh, I never have thought of myself as headless press agent, but uh, (laughs) it it did seem to me that here we had a central figure in the history of the 20th century. He wrote a grand total of two books, one of which was available, long available, since the 1930s in a reliable English language edition, but the other one wasn't, and eventually Uh, persuaded uh, the Enigma books in New York uh, to put out an English language edition. Uh, They had a good translator. Uh, A lady who lives in Italy and lives are living this way. I've never met her, and she's very good. And had, as I promised every publisher, I checked it very carefully against the original to make sure that it reflected the original as accurately as possible. There's always a temptation to a little, and uh, it just seemed to me that we wanted to get the English to be as close to the original as possible. One can always argue about specific words. So it eventually came out in a reliable English-language edition, And ironically, in between the first German publication, in '61, and a second one actually in 93, some more information from the time when it was dictated in 20, 1928 had been turned up in a German archive and communicated to me by the uh, scholar who found it. Uh, so we had some useful additional information to include in the more recent book. Uh, this is not to understand at the going to replace McCauley as dead side reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting. And at least for those who want to, it's available. Mm-hmm. I mean. Maybe we take the, of course, the question that the gentleman over here is uh, first going to ask him, and then we can go back to some other questions. How are you? Professor um, you mentioned the Crystal Knight. I have read a great deal about it. It's a horrendous event. What was the official, let's say formal reaction of the United States to this event? The formal reaction of the United States was twofold, if you will. A public denunciation by President Roosevelt. And what is interesting is, I've seen the document in Hyde Park in the Presidential Library. The State Department served up to him a draft. And in Roosevelt's handwriting, it's made very much more vehement. Uh, He he had a habit of doing those sorts of things. And while you have to work hard and, and long in Hyde Park, to track the president, if you spend enough time, you do. You know? When he got something from oh, the Secretary of State, or the General Marshall and the kids, and he liked it, you had in the top corner, OK, GCM for George C. Marshall, OK, FDR, CH for OK, FDR. But if something
1: came that he did not approve of. There would be a tight no. All prior endorsements
3: reversed. Franklin D. Roosevelt, Commander in Chief, he had a way of doing things. Let me put it that hands, And in this particular case, in the first instance, he greatly uh, made made more pointed the public disapproval, and he recalled the American ambassador. The only government that did so. So within the framework of what he as president could do, because ambassadors are all appointed by the president of the United States, uh, that's what he did. And that was, if you will, the official position, the less official, if you will, public reaction was a very general turning of public opinion against Germany in a way it had not turned before. The the whole notion, particularly of destroying houses of worship systematically across the country, all at the same time, that is to say, one night and day, uh, seemed to lots of Americans who, whatever their views of other religions, I had a self-perception, if I may use that term, that this is a country where everybody goes to have no hell their own way. That you may not like some other religious group, but that's they, they, they're allowed to have their house of worship. And there may be this other one, and they should have theirs. This, if you will, self-perception, regardless of what people thought about the individual members of other religious groups. Am I making that sound clear? It is, I think, very much a part of the way of Americans think of this country. And therefore, the idea of destroying one religious group's houses of worship across the country really brought home to large <laughs> numbers of Americans a sense of horror and uh, objection that some of the earlier things that had happened simply had not done. Now, you have another one to read. I do. Um. Someone has written here that he or she was under the impression
2: that when Hitler wrote his original Mein Kampf back in the 1920s, he wrote about the killing of Jews in Mein Kampf. That's the first statement. Then there's a question after the statement. Is there any documented case that a person who declined to
3: participate in killing Jews was not suggested to punishment? Okay. The answer to the first question is that the only way in which actual killing comes up in Mein Kampf is when he talks not so much about Jews, but opponents, generally, uh, of German policy in 1914, uh, and that all would have been easier for Germany if a few thousand people had been gassed. Uh, as to objections the answer is no there was a very interesting article that appeared some years ago in the German Studies Review by a man who studied this systematically, Professor David Kittleman, who teaches at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff and he did a very careful study of soldiers and administrators who refused to kill civilians and the answer is, if nothing happened to all, uh, they would be assigned to other duties, uh, as I mentioned in my talk. Again, since there were always enough who were willing to do this, there were always other things to do. And that was as true in the so-called euthanasia program as in the killing of Jews. Very quickly, in Hospital X, where they were killing patients. People would find out Nurse A will kill patients and Nurse B won't. So when there were patients to be killed, Nurse A was assigned to it, and Nurse B was sterilizing instruments or doing any one of the million other things that have to be done in the hospital. The same thing was true in the military. That is to say, both fell Soldiers and the officers in charge very quickly discovered that if Company X of this or that regiment is sent in a so-called anti-partisan operation into a Russian community and told to kill everybody in the community, there is this one soldier, on who won't do that. He's a good soldier. He will participate in battle, he'll carry his buddies home if they're wounded. He just has this one weird problem. Uh, instead of collecting butterflies, he, he he won't kill civilians. So when that's the unit's assignment, he gets to haul ammunition, he gets to look after the horses, since this is an army that depends overwhelmingly on horses. He gets to check, to make some repairs on on the supply wagons. There are a million things to do, and the officers know perfectly well that getting good replacements is, is a tough thing. And Hans is a perfectly good soldier, so uh, there is if you will, a you a, a a disregard uh, of things and. Nothing is reported and nothing happens. In military organizations, you see, reports always engage what they are supposed to report. Whether that's what actually happened or not is entirely different. I can quickly give you experiences from my home in the military. Uh, for a while, I was in the fourth replacement depot uh, in Sama so Japan, and uh, when I was first assigned to emergency supply, the first day, the warrant officer said, uh, you will this, you'll take these convoys, it will take all day, you will go to the mess sergeant to draw your lunch, and you will first tell them how many trucks you have. And I said, yes, sir, he was to say, but puzzle, what has the number of trucks? <laughs> but it turned out, as I was very quickly enlightened, the drivers and helpers were all Japanese men, there is a big turtle hunting, and my lunch appetite Frank, or grew, depending on the numbers. And it was assumed that at lunchtime, I, we would stop and I would provide food to them.
1: And of course, the report from the Fort Replacement Depot, if you have a look at it, will make it very clear that they fed only American soldiers. Okay? It's just
3: that there were two soldiers among the thousands who suffered from this very unique disease of dramatically varying appetites. I mean, this is the way, the way things are. Okay? When I moved to Yokohama, you know, is in the an area where we have Quancet and there was all, it was surrounded by barbed wire. There was supposed to be no unauthorized personnel in there. And every day, there were Japanese hanging in the garbage cans, hauling stuff out. And everybody understood, number one, they're harmless. number two, they need what they're getting. Okay? And the military police would walk right by them. Nobody saw them because... They weren't there. Okay. And one day I got back from the school where I was teaching early, where it was out the commanding general Michael Brooker was taking the commander of the British forces on a tour of the Hutt area. area. I went in and get my camera. There are the two generals walking between these two rows of Hutt area, of Quonset and right behind them there is a garbage can with the Japanese hanging in it. And since the two generals don't see him, that means he's not there. And every day, Major Old sure, signed off on the morning report, no unauthorized personnel in the 8th Army Hut area. I mean, one has to try to see these things in terms of the dynamics of the time. And if somebody had this from the perspective of his buddies, weird uh, predisposition, that when it came to killing women and children you endure it, okay, somebody else would do it, and there were a million other things for him to do, and that was the end of the matter. And uh, it is interesting that in 65 years of trials, nobody has ever been able to find a single instance of a soldier, administrator, police officer, or whatnot, being punished for refusing to carry out an order to kill civilians. Now, we had the, uh, oh, you've got one back there, Okay, Dr. Weinberg,
0: could you uh, maybe share with us some of your personal experience I know you're quite young when this was unfolding, but do you have any vivid memories of uh, you and your family first
1: realizing they are in danger? Or did you experience any um, open displays of hate that you can recall?
3: Well, there were several ways in which one saw this. Uh, I was born in January 28th the way as a kid one saw these things uh, were several ways. Number one, in 1934, my father was fired from the job because he was Jewish. Uh, as you would into downtown, the city of Hanover in uh, north central Germany, you would see signs in many restaurants that they would not serve Jews. We knew that. Couldn't go to the swimming pool. Couldn't go to the movies. For a short time, my parents had a secondhand car, but then Jews were forbidden to drive. So we didn't have a car anymore. Uh, in school, my brother and I, a year and a half older than I, were repeatedly beaten up by others because we were Jewish. And my parents had to take my brother out of school, send him to live with a family, and go in and attend a Jewish school there maybe because I have a thicker skull, who knows? Anyway, I stuck it out. Until in November 38, one day, the principal came into the classroom. This would have been around the 11th, I think, or 12th of November, and read the decree that Jews could not be in the school. So another boy and I, this is a gender-segregated education system, another boy and I got out, collected our stuff and left. And of course, what made it enormous, probably of all the things make the greatest impression on me at the time, was that the synagogue that we had attended was burned. And the Jewish school that I then briefly attended was across the street from the woman. And as a kid, me more than anything else. You see? The idea that people would do nasty things to other people was something that I certainly didn't like. But that if people hated other people, they would be nasty to them and hurt them. Especially when people were constantly talking about the First World War, in which vast numbers had been killed. My father had been wounded. I mean that not nice, but was a part of the way things are. You had German word for a house of worship of any religion is a goddess house, a house of God. That people were mad enough to God to burn down his houses, that somehow to me, as a ten year old. That that was somehow in a different dimension, I certainly didn't appreciate being beaten up, but if kids didn't like me, well, if they beat up on me, I didn't like. But somehow or other, that was a nasty part of life. But the people would be so mad at God. And what had God done to them? That they would burn down his house. That, to me at least, I'm trying to answer your question as honestly as I can. At the time, that that was shocking in a, in a very different way and stuck with me uh, after I left the country uh, as something, if you will, a different category of, of horror from what people did to other people <laughs> however nasty and unpleasant that uh, much we could it's um, now just past eight thirty and I promised Professor Weinberg that we
2: would stop at eight thirty, but we started a couple minutes late. Okay. Okay. If we go, Commissioner, sure. I have a very specific question to ask you at the end. I did not for me, but for the audience. This might, I think, be a good closing one. But maybe we just have a couple of other questions and then we answer this and then we well, this is probably a very simple one in comparison. But, thank you. Uh, I say this is probably a very simple question in comparison. But, What do you do when you find yourself in just a conversation with people, friends, acquaintances, who say the holocaust never happened? What do you say?
3: I tell them that since we have vastly more records on the holocaust than on the American Civil War, that war did not happen but is the invention. Of the Gettysburg Chamber of Commerce <laughs> to bring, well, I'm answering your question now, to bring tourists to an economically depressed part of Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, what else? This, by the way, anticipated one of the questions.
2: And I think he would say the same thing to President Ahmadinejad of Iran uh, who has denied the existence of the Holocaust and that was one of the questions to what he might say to Ahmadinejad but I might be afraid that he would ask me how he wanted to embellish that uh, yeah, we, yeah, he can if he wishes to but I will go on to a different question if I could yes. and this one confuses me the most it might be the most significant one that I have here I don't know And is there anything significant with today being the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall? I guess it sort of translated somehow, is there any relationship between the wall coming down, Germany being reunited, and Kristallnacht and the Holocaust?
3: The interconnection is that the Germans did not go to war because the French would not allow Hitler to see the Eiffel Tower. They would have been very happy to show it to him. The Germans started the war, among other reasons, to create a demographic revolution on the globe. And of that, the killing of all Jews on the globe was a major part. Their losing that war meant that those aims were not attained, The victory of the Allies saved the lives of roughly two-thirds of the world's Jews. And Germany ended up divided by the victors the way it had not been divided by the victors after World War I. And that was, in their eyes, a mistake. They were not going to repeat. that it would then take almost half a century for that division to last was, if you will, a product of the war for the demographic revolution that the Germans had started and lost. And as long as the Red Army stood behind the the East German regime, it would be there. When the Germans don't want a government, they get rid of it. And they tried in 1953, in East Germany, Germany, and the Red Army intervened and kept Ulbricht in power. But nobody would have done that for Hitler. No foreign army was going to go into Germany if the Germans had done to the Nazi regime, what they tried to do to the East German regime in '53, and were able to do to it in '89, because by that time, the Red Army in East Germany had a different set of orders. Stay in the barracks. And they stayed in the barracks. And that was the end of that regime and uh, reunification, I mean, it took a year and a half or so to work out the details, but uh, there was, in effect, uh, the end of the regime. So it tells us, number one, that if the Germans had wanted to get rid of the Nazi regime, it had a police apparatus much smaller than the East German state, uh, they could have done it, but they obviously didn't want to do it. And as a result of keeping it and fighting for it to the bitter end, they got themselves a very bitter end indeed. And that bitter end included a long-time division of Germany uh, into two quite separate states. Fortunately, no third world war, but as I said, in a long time division, which once the Soviet leadership decided, well, I won't quote, but you can imagine, uh, that ended it. Uh, it was, if you will, the converse of trying to keep it going by building the wall in 1961 because the East Germans were all voting with their feet and leaving the country. And my prediction in those days, you see, before the war went up, always was, that someday all Germans will be again united in West Germany, and East Germany will be a sort of a national park, rather like Mesa Verde, that is to say, with the ruins of the real existing socialism instead of the ruins uh, of the uh, ancient peoples in Verde, uh, okay? and the few remaining members of the Socialist Unity Party uh, playing the role of park rangers and taking people uh, and <laughs> conducting tours of what was left. But instead,
2: a somewhat happier event you know, 20 years ago that meant that although lots and lots and lots of the millions of the East Germans had left, there was still a substantial number left uh, in the country uh, to be unified with their West German co-citizens. Okay, I think if we I think we'd um, But I'd like to thank two separate people. Um, one, I'd like to thank Mr.